you're on the Crisis Hotline with Doc. Yeah, I'm not afraid if I'm not mistaken, after this book, you then had the transition, as we're relating to The Flash, away from our friend Barry Allen, to then really focusing in on Wally West character, and with the occasional Jay Garrick even coming back and consoling Wally because of losing their Barry. So it did end up being a useful vehicle from that standpoint. I also will add, because folks, we're not going to go thing issue by issue or else we would be here for days. But really, you know, the goal here is to demystify this and provide you with those takeaways. I, I think another key takeaway in this event is not only the introduction here, as you mentioned, of the monitor and anti-monitor, but I thought what was very, very effective was the integration then of Jack Kirby's new gods into this whole mix because i know we had gotten glimpses and uses of new gods here and there throughout the dc universe after they had been birthed there in the 70s but this right here provided some clarity at least for me with respect to the interactions across the multiverse with the new gods which i think is important in establishing new gods as being a pivot point within the DC universe and elevating that entire fourth world that Jack had created. Yeah, I, I completely agree. They That's how encompassing it was. You know, it, it took care of everything. And, you know, from what I remember, it was Darkseid who helped finally put an end to the Anti-Monitor, the threat of the Anti-Monitor, which was just awesome. He kind of comes in. And why? Because usually Darkseid, you know, Darkseid's about He's not about destroying the multiverse and the universe. He wants to control it. And so if you destroy everything, there's nothing to control. So it's, you know, we, we see a similar thing like it happened like an invasion. When we talked about that series, kind of have to address, well, you know, these aliens are invading Earth, but, you know, why, you know, how, how did the new gods fit into that? And it was like, well, they, they got dark sides okay. They can't destroy the Earth, but they can take it over, blah, 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 all that. So they kind of do the same thing with it dress it turns out that dark side becomes a big part of the plot towards the end uh, we don't see a whole lot of them but he definitely becomes an integral part of it right and the also huge part of this crisis events is time travel i mean my gosh you have things happening in the 30th century the 20th century on different worlds on different earths you have the merging of five earths together at one point i'm like whoa Okay, th th this is like, you know, Doctor Who uh, being thrown into the DC universe here as far as this seamless moving throughout time and space. And again, Doc, this all predates Watchmen and Dr. Manhattan, who would completely blow this thing out of the water. But I do like this time travel element and popping back and forth between these Earths during different time periods and how they're monitoring all the different activities across the multiverse based on who's there in that world, in that multiverse at any given time, who they're communicating. It's, yeah, it will make your head explode at points, but it really presents the reader with these limitless opportunities that could be coming their way based off of this reveal. And this was like back when, this was before time travel became kind of a gimmick when a writer wrote himself or herself into a, and like, oh, what are we going to do? Oh, time travel. They'll just go back in time and fix it. This was not a gimmick in crisis. This was integral part 
of the plot. And basically, you know, what happens is one of the, um, oh, what's his name? Why am I drawing blank? Krona. Krona goes back because he, he's a scientist on Oa and he wants to know everything. He wants to see the beginning of the universe. So he develops a, a method to go back to the very beginning, to the Big Bang. And he witnesses that hand coming out of out of the dark. But the, the device that he created to do that, it, it created a, this huge explosion. And that's what that's what created the multiverse. So the multiverse, according to DC cosmology, is not the natural order of things. It should have been a universe. And Krona and his eagerness and his hubris, I guess, to know everything, that's what created and splintered everything into the multiverse. So it could almost be seen as the antimatter. Isn't he just doing... Like, uh, you know, kind of the natural course of things. You know, it adds a good little, cool little dimension to it. And the monitor is trying to go in against nature by, you know, wanting, wanting to uh, keep multiversity in action and keep it keep it ticking. So it was, it was a really cool little story towards the end when that was revealed. And so you could see, like, some of the Green Lantern titles. But one I'm talking about, like, when you said, like, it goes on in the 30th century. I'm not Infinity, Inc. Um, the Legion of Superheroes. That's one of, that's like, I think, six or seven books that are scattered through. And again, that's... That gets into a deep subplot that really, I honestly, it was a fun story, but I thought it took away from the main crisis because it just went too much into what was happening into the future. That would actually be something that would be fun to read after you finished Crisis because then you can kind of see it from another perspective. But I thought that kind of like slowed it down a little bit. And they were just trying to fit, you know, like you said, this, this time into uh, the, the 30th century, into the current, what was going on. So good story, but I thought a kind of screeching halt to what was going on in the actual crisis. Because once you get into that time travel stuff, it's really fun. The Spectre unites all the villains and, and the heroes to realize, you know, that's the first time we saw this all, as well in DC, that it's like, hey, you know, everything's going to be wiped out. So we all have to come together. And that's when one goes in this part of time, one goes to that part of time. And it was really, really awesome. And the Spectre is just, every crisis he's important in. That's what I love about him. <laughs> yeah, no, he's great and related there, Doc. I think the psycho pirate character just absolutely enthralled me. I was like, okay, this is this is a wild character with just that, folks. Psychological problems, a psycho pirate. One of the interesting things is, uh, I think the issue was three Earths, three deaths. The new monitor gloats when another monitor is dead, which that's an interesting thing unto itself. I mean, not only did you have monitor versus anti-monitor, but you also had monitors who were lusting for power and were gloating that another monitor was dead. And therefore, hey, here's another, here's another world that I can acquire and start squishing things together. And here's this monitor who is then giving psycho pirate a wish for control of a world. I'm going, uh, okay, well, this, this is a wild trip here. Yeah, it, this is a very, very fun read, very clever in how it rolls out. But like you said, Doc, at the end of the day, you had deaths happening that were permanent. You also had a return to a single universe, which that would be covered in Aftershock. You basically have this big bang happen again, but this time only one universe with only one Earth appears. So all of that promise that they were showing between all of these worlds in this multiverse, essentially at the end of the day for this particular event comes to a screeching halt. So then that that is the only thing, frankly, that had me scratching my head. Because if their pure desire was to create or make some sense out of chaos. In the end, what they did is 
they made a fun story. You got people into it, but then they decided, well, that's a little too complex for us now. So we're just going to simplify things for everybody. And now you have one universe. Okay. So my question to you would be this. Because I think that's another demystifying outcome of all of this, because you can get confused in the issues until you come to the very end and you go, was that just taken for a joyride? Was this a bait and switch? I mean, seriously, what just happened here? So, Doc, I'm going to ask you, in your opinion, what just happened here? Was this a misfire or was this purposeful on DC's uh, behalf? Or maybe this was purposeful that then turned into a misjudgment or misfire? Or do you think it effectively worked? I um, that's, a, that's a great question. And I've gone back and forth about that many times. Again, if you are looking, if you're, if you're just looking at this for, this for the story, I think... I think it's enjoyable and I think it all works and it all fits together. But for the bigger part of DC, did they take us on a ride? No, I don't think they did. I They didn't let Wolfman do exactly what he wanted. And I think if, if, he, if, if Wolfman got 100% of what he wanted to do, like for the outcomes, then I think it would have made a little bit more sense and it wouldn't, like, like I said, you kind of... That I just, you know, that it just take me for a ride. Which basically, Wolfman wanted to do, he wanted to do a hard hard reboot of dc we're talking about wiping the entire slate clean and everybody going back to number one books number you know the uh, issue number ones and they wouldn't let him do that they were like hold on you're because not only are you rewriting history dc's history or future we're kind of rewriting the entire past and wiping it out we can't do that and i was wrong before i said marv wanted them to remember he wanted everybody all the heroes to forget about the crisis which a lot of them did forget what happened for the crisis the editors were like no no and the, the editors were saying the same thing they're like if the heroes don't remember a crisis then it kind of invalidates the whole book doesn't it what's the point of writing this book and, and marv with his typical reply he goes he wrote back the heroes don't buy our comics it doesn't matter if they remember the stories or not. The readers will. They'll remember them. Let's not complicate things. So th that was his hard line the whole time is like overcomplicating things. This is really simple. <laughs> so, okay. So, Doc, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I, I see the ripple in the space-time continuum and the explanation for the reader residing in Rip Hunter because his time vehicle emerges out of the time stream with the forgotten heroes in it. And they notice the time has reset itself. So there's a hard reboot right there. You're being told as a reader, oh, guess what? Time just reset itself. And of course, you know, that was kind of trippy with them boarding Brainiac's skull ship and floating into space and all that good stuff. There's at least, for better or for worse, a reveal to the reader or an explanation to then ground them and to tell them, yeah, you know, that bang that happened just again guess what time just reset itself so then there's always that possibility too within the dc universe for time to reset itself so they present an awful lot of compelling explanations through these stories of things that would be used in the future to call back to so although this was something that it doesn't matter if the heroes remember it or not there was will yeah those possibilities and explanations were revealed in this series. And therefore, I think that legacy has carried through and actually served DC well when they've needed to make a 
dramatic change or create an earth-shattering event that would try to grip readers in. And anytime the they, readers would go, why is this happening? Well, they could point back to crisis on infinite earths and go, look, here's precedent. It did. It kind of gave them like, like a metaphysical eraser. <laughs> to a, or you know like to a sharp or not a sharpie but the one that you can erase that you know so they can just keep rewriting stuff and you know and some some fans they they didn't like that at all you know they didn't like that it, it, things were a little bit more fluid and like i said you know movement didn't really intend it to be that was kind of he had the intentions the whole time of doing that hard reboot but I, I think as things turned out i mean i think it i liked i like the ideas that we got from it i like i like what they did with it and as far as that they could I don't think they ever took advantage of the fact that they could go back and they could just cite precedents of all happening in crisis. Um, I don't think they ever took advantage there. I'm sure if I really dove into some some of the books at the time, I might find one or two that they may have. But I, th I think overall, I think Crisis kind of did what it set out to do as far as what Marv wanted it to do, which was help continuity. And I also... I know it doesn't sound like much of an answer, but I also think that it didn't do a whole lot for continuity either. As it turns out with, you know, now that we have one Earth, writers realize it's like, oh boy, after we write, there's only so many Bats Batman stories we can write in, on this one Earth. What are we going to do now? So it's like, I think it got a little bit stale and that's when they decided to reintroduce, you know, an infinite crisis, bring back the, uh, the multiverse. Um, even though the characters didn't know the multiverse, they still brought it back. That way it opened up for writers to be able to talk about some different stories. Zero Hour, The Crisis, which which came right before Infinite Crisis, that one also tried to address a few problems of continuity problems that was left over in the wake of Crisis of Infinite Earths 2, which I think was a little bit less successful. I think that also created some more problems, which is, again, another episode of Crisis Hotline. But I enjoyed the story. I, you know, I can, like I said, as I've gotten older, I can kind of just take stories individually and for what they are and i don't always you know look to the to the meta about you know what does it mean for, and things like that some pre-crisis books and then some of the post-crisis books because in some books there's a huge shift batman there's not really that much of a shift until you come to frank miller of course but for other ones like with superman there's like there's a couple changes and obviously supergirl she's no longer but then what about power girl <laughs> you know because basically when we get one word that is superman is the last the last son of Krypton, the last inhabitant of Krypton. So how to, what the hell's Power Girl then? Where does she fit into all? So things like that, they kind of shot themselves in the foot for continuity, but if you just enjoy it and you don't look too deep into it, which that's kind of what comic book, that's what um, fanboys do. We look deep into things. Then that's when you can kind of see some cracks that, that come out of it. <laughs> sure. You know, Doc, I couldn't help but think it, it took me to how DC has been challenged to develop a multiverse on the big screen and not to say that everything from comics needs to relate to cinema or adaptations there but frankly dc sometimes is too complex for its own good i think they've done best both not only in the comics but then when they've bothered to translate their comic book characters into either tv shows or movies when they've gone narrow they focused in and they've gone deep and really doing the character development and focusing in on not a huge world building because I almost think they get lost in their own thought. And this is just DC. As where Marvel, on the other hand, has done a masterful job of weaving through their continuity the interactions between comic book characters in the pages, but then obviously what they've developed in the cinematic universe, that's one of those lightning strikes only one time. They got the right folks mapping out the right storylines and then weaving them all into a larger master plan. Here, DC for me will always represent 
limitless possibility. Marvel, on the other hand, they've got a plan. Everything that they write is local and personal. They really focus on speaking to the individual and the individual reader. As we're here with DC, I think they've they're more of a hey, let's create a fantastical event to capture people's imaginations. And you run the risk of sometimes that being, yes, and this pun is intentional, all flash and no substance. And of course, we get the death of one of the flashes here in this event. Real quick, going on that, uh, we were talking about with the, you know, not to go too much into the movies, but it, I think it's true. And I think DC, their biggest, their biggest hurdle that they created for themselves was that they want to stay so true to the comic book source. Whereas, you know, with Marvel, for example, they introduced Ultron before they introduced Ant-Man which we all know that, you know, Pym is the one that basically created the uh, Ultron, the artificial intelligence and the program and blah, blah, blah. And where DC, like, you know, we got in, I believe it was in Batman versus Superman, the movie, we had parademons flying around. And unless you knew your comic books, people were like, what the hell are these? You know, when Batman, I think when it was looking into the future or whatever, and, you know, that, that going on, people were like, what the hell is that? It's a parademon. Come on, dude. <laughs> Marvel has no problems basically taking the cadaver of the past stitching them together into a new monster and not worrying about continuity issues as it relates to source material. They will cherry pick the best stuff, weave it together, and they have no problem doing cross genre, meaning this. So many folks mistake comics as being a genre. Comics are not a genre. What we're talking about here are superhero stories hero stories within comic books as a medium. So with that, Marvel has done Jason Bourne type spy thriller stuff when you're talking about Captain America and Winter Soldier. They have gone the traditional superhero route, certainly when we're talking the likes of Iron Man. They have gone into mythology when you're talking Thor. They've delved into science fiction when you're talking Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, do I need to say more? Okay. DC, on the other hand, and to their credit, and I, and I love them for being a comic book fan. You're right, Doc. They tend to, for the most part, not disrupt their own tradition and try to honor it as best they can. But by doing that, that limits you in what you're able to do. So I swear, I don't need to in my lifetime ever, ever see the death of the Waynes ever again. See that pearl necklace drop to the streets and the trigger being pulled. Okay, I'm over it. I'm done. So, you know, stop, stop, stop with. The retelling, oh gosh. You know, and the same can also, for me, be said for Superman. I don't need to see Superman's origin story. I get it. Escape Krypton. We get it. It happened. Show me something new. So, you know, again, to its credit, I really thought Marv Wolfman was onto something. In the spirit of show me something new, hey, here's some of these old legacy characters that had been forgotten, that all of a sudden were being pulled forward out of the past, out of the annals, and made relevant again. Hey, you know, that's pretty cool to dust something like that and done creatively through this crisis event. So I thought that was very effective. And frankly, Doc, opened up or helped fuel the blueprint that would ultimately be the one 
that Karen Berger would latch on to when saying, hey, look, you know what? Character over here. Why don't my, what would become my Vertigo writing team, start writing for some of those legacy characters and see if we can give them a facelift and write some original stories with it. Hey, we got Doom Patrol out of it, man. Holy mackerel. That alone, it's worth it. You know, you had Alan Moore's take on Swamp Thing. Whoa, this is amazing. No offense to Len Wein. Len Wein's original nice and all, but nothing compared to what Alan Moore spun it into. You then ultimately had Neil Gaiman thinking, oh my gosh, a Golden Age character who had been long, long, you know, forgotten and said, "Uh, you know, I'm not going to do that exact. I'll pay an homage to the character in the early issues of this, but I'm going to create a new Sandman here and really change the face of what we're doing over here. So I think this event helped fuel or encourage ultimately that to happen over at DC, which I think is great because how else can you account for Arkham Asylum eventually? How DC was going at this time? Had they not had this crisis event and said, hey, you know what? All this different stuff can be happening. I don't think you would have gotten that. I, I think that was the same atmosphere that was starting to support someone like Frank Miller coming on board and doing Dark Knight Return. So, you know, all of this sort of stuff was fueled very nicely, I think, by this crisis event, or at least bolstered by it, almost call it like a big comics cheerleader saying, hey, you know what? You can mix it up here. And and here's how we did it. But at the end of the day, we're still DC, and oh, we just simplified things down to one universe. Oh. All right. And, and I hope I hope DC's learned their lesson movie-wise, and hopefully they'll be on the right track. They have a solid Wonder Woman and a solid Shazam. Still, I think Batman versus Superman was was solid as well. But you know, hopefully they'll they'll move forward and they'll not worry about so much about creating this multiverse too quickly, and they'll just focus movie by movie like Marvel. So, Doc, why don't you give me your top three takeaways in the demystifying of Crisis on Infinite Earths? What do we need to take from this? to then carry it forward into the next episode of Crisis Hotline. So let me see. That's a good one to to boil it down. So you have, at the end of this crisis, you have a couple characters that really, really pulled through. You have have Kal-El from Earth 2, and you have Lois Lane from Earth 2. You have Superboy Prime, and you have Alexander Luther Jr., from Earth 3, that they were basically very instrumental in taking down the Anti-Monitor. And because they're all now displaced, because their worlds were all gone, that they created Alexander Luther Jr., he created a pocket universe. They called it the Paradise Universe, where they lived. So because they didn't belong anywhere, they were like kind of strangers without a home. And so that's going to be really super instrumental for the next, I consider the next big crisis to be infinite. There was a couple of crises before that but that's the next big one they have a very big part play in infinite crisis so that those are the characters that i mean and you kind of like you don't hear from them again up until infinite so you almost forget about them. and then they they come back with a fury another takeaway is i think you know i think the whole cosmology that was developed in this um as we talked about with how that's changed over the years and snyder is kind of like you know reworking it in his own magic um, nowadays with metal and all the post metal so that cosmology and probably the third takeaway is that a lot of worlds, a lot of worlds disappeared. A lot of characters disappeared. I think, kind of like we've, we've mentioned a couple times, that I think some of the continuity problems kind of resolved and other ones were created as a result of it. But if you don't look at it 
far as continuity goes. I think it's just I think it's just a hell of a story that is super readable, and, and I think it could be enjoyed just on its own. If you've never picked up a DC comic before, like in the pre-crisis era, I still think that you'll enjoy. There's a lot to be said. You get to see a lot of characters die. Some of them good, and some of them do come back in future years. So I think it was uh, pretty interesting, successful too. Yeah, I will say I got an awful lot out of the core 12 books here in the series. I was very much reminded that, hey, here's the foundation from which Grant Morrison built out his whole multiversity series for DC. And that, hey, this was foundational to the new 52 being launched. And what that ultimately brought to the table for DC in the possibility of reboot, new storytelling. Yeah, it infuriated folks because you were rebooting and going back to issue one in a lot of instances. But let's face it, this was the groundwork that then ultimately gave them the okay to begin to start to do that, even though Marv wasn't allowed to do it with this initial event the way he wanted to. He at least laid out the roadmap from which they would ultimately end up doing that within the DC universe. You know they were all thinking, wow, we are probably even knew back then that they were breaking ground with what they were trying to do as far as taking every page of DC's history in comics and create something in this crisis. And you would think they may have like, you know, got maybe, you know, like a four or five issue miniseries. But no, they went balls to the wall and they were like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it. We're going to involve every title that we're writing right now and publishing right now. So they were not treading lightly and trying to test the waters. They just, and I appreciate that. And I really respect that, that they went really took a chance. And like you said, we got something new and we got something exciting as a result of it. I hope, you know, I think Marv Wolpin says it best through, through Harbinger. In one of in the conclusion of Crisis, where he says, "Life," or, and this is Marv Wolfman talking through his character Harbinger, "Life must never stand still; it must constantly move ahead. We should never forget the past, but we should always look to the future because that's where we're going to spend the rest of our lives." I don't know about you guys, but I can't wait to tomorrow. I mean, that perfectly summarizes Christ, the end of Crisis. We have a future now. He thinks it's wiped clean; it wasn't wiped as clean as he thought it was, but still, it's open now. Writers can kind of be a little. Bit creative and they can kind of do their thing again we don't quote unquote have continuity part <laughs> i think it's a fitting quote indeed it is a fitting quote and really captures the aspirational tone of this 12 issue event and year-long event and along those lines doc a you know, on a scale of one to ten th- this definitely hits a 10 in, in aspiration but in execution where would you rate this event overall in the crisis pantheon, understanding that it's always most difficult to go first? Yeah, I would give this probably like a, a good seven and a half. I think, yeah, seven and a half, eight. I, I, would, I, would, I would hover. That's, maybe I'm being a little bit generous, but it is taking consideration that it is the first major huge event of any comic book house and they you know i think they really did a fantastic job especially going out on a limb i give it i'll just i'll I'll stick with seven and a half the first one no i think that's fair because frankly they'd be deserving of a higher mark if they had fully embraced marv wolfman's vision and had the guts to see that through but i also understand an old guard then being owned by warm's ip management company 
that they were. But but to the, also to the credit, they were recognizing very early on that the creators' rights movement was coming fast and furious, that they would need to start to address that, that they would need to retain talent and allow them to become a little more exploratory in using some of their foundational characters to tell new and compelling stories. So I give DC credit there on, on that, but they still reverted back to the safe way to go. And that was, well, okay, you told a very nice, compelling story there that gripped people for an entire year. Mm, I will meet you, what, about halfway? Would you say, Doc? All right. So, folks, we hope that you have enjoyed this inaugural episode of Crisis Hotline with Doc. We would love to hear from you. Please leave us a message via the Anchor app or send us an email or MP3 file, Kirby's Kids Podcast at gmail.com. Doc, any last words? Go out there and read it. Don't be don't be intimidated, even if you just read the tour issues. And then after you read those 12, you might go back and look up like the reading list that I, I left with Angus and might want to supplement some here and there. But just just go into it because it's really fun. Especially if you watch the uh, the TV event, you're gonna get the real crisis that was meant to be in the comics. Mm-hmm.